0: This is our sermon on Ephesians. And we started with Paul in prison. And he's writing to the church in Ephesus. And so this would be a letter that would be going to the church, but it's churches all around Ephesus and around the city. Most of them probably meeting in homes. Some of them might be meeting in halls. And the Apostle Paul, while in prison, and this still surprises me and amazes me, he, he spends the first chunk of this letter not complaining, but praising God for things he cannot see. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So things like predestination and adoption and, and redemption and forgiveness and being sealed with the Spirit and those things overwhelm him because he writes the first half of the the book of chapter is one sentence it's like he's so excited he can't put in any punctuation he moves on and then he begins to selflessly pray for the church he's writing to which just strikes me as amazing i would have slipped in there pray that i get out but he doesn't do that and then last week, we took a look at how Paul uh, articulated how we are all dead in our trespasses and sins. In other words, we're alienated from God. And then amazingly, what God did for each of us, both Gentile and Jew. And now, he speaks specifically to the non-Jews, the Gentiles, how they were once alien. Aliens are strangers and are now brought near to God and to his people. So that's our text this morning. Let's get to work. John Stott, as he unpacks this chapter, he he sees uh, three stages in this chapter. The first stage is, therefore remember in verse 11, and then He gets to verse 13. He says, but now is the second stage. And then he gets to the the final stage. And he says, so then. And he sees this as a a spiritual biography. So go remember, but now and so then. I'm going to take his his, uh, outline. But what I want you to do, instead of seeing three stages, I want to assign each of those three tasks or actions that we are to take. Let me list them for you. And then we'll walk through them. Verses 11 to 12, uh, Paul calls us to remember the pain and the bitterness of alienation. In verses 13 through 18, Paul calls us to understand what Jesus has accomplished. And then in the final section, verse 19 to 22, Paul wants us to see our new ethnicity. Okay? So let's start with. We are called to remember. Now, Paul just simply says, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh. But I've added, I don't think he just simply wants us to intellectually remember an event or something. I think he wants us to remember everything, all the implications of that alienation of the past. And so I've added, not to the text, but of, uh, the, the pain and the, and the bitterness. If we go back to Genesis chapter 2, we're told that after God created male and female, we're told that they were naked and not ashamed. Very next chapter, they rebel against God. They do their own thing. They said, God, you said this, but I'm going to say this. And we're told that they were afraid, they were naked, and they hid. Completely changed. A wedge was driven between the male and the female, between Adam and Eve. And a wedge was driven between humanity and God. There was an alienation. There was fear. There was, they were hiding. They, they were trembling as God was walking through the garden. I don't think we have to look too far. Watch the news, and we see the alienation all around us, don't we? I mean, it, the, the news gets more depressing every time I, I I turn on the. It's not the TV anymore. I always get it on the internet, right? But it, it's 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 hard to read. It's hard to watch. And it seems like we we're getting angrier and angrier at each other. Now maybe that's always been the case. In our, in our family's life, I, I'll i never forget the day one of my dear friends called me. Our families, we would go camping together. We, we were always in each other's house. Our kids were all about the same age. We did so much together. Life was always together. And I get a call, and my friend says my wife left me. And I'll never forget that. Uh, I, the, the, the pain in, in, in those children's eyes, the, the heartache, the anger, the all of the things that went along with that, and the implications and the ramifications of that are still effective more than a decade later. And I just saw the wedge between husband and wife. I just saw the... The, the pain, the implications of all of that. And and I, I still to this day, I think it was that event that caused the tear ducts in my wife's eyes to unleash. She's continued to, it, it's like it started a flood that has continued in so many ways. The Apostle Paul, when he looks back and he says to the Gentiles, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. He's saying, I want you to remember how you were divided and, and the pain and the grief that that caused. The bitterness and all the other things that it caused. He starts off with hostility. Actually, what we have here called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. These were two what it seems to be from history from Josephus and others were derogatory words that they used at each other. So the Gentiles would call the Jews the circumcised ones and the, the, the Jews would call the Gentiles the uncircumcision. There was a hostility between the two. And then he goes on and he lists five things that that... You, you could almost say reality, bitter realities, because of this separation. Verse 12, remember again, that word, remember again. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. Now, if you go all the way back to the garden, after Adam and Eve sinned, God gave a little hint, a little hope, that that someday one of Eve's offspring would bring hope. And And then... Later, as we're moving along, we begin to realize that this offspring would come from the people of Israel. And so we have promises like in in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Or chapter 9. We read these words, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. And so that. There was this separation and there was all the pain that we see throughout the history of humanity, but, but God had given a promise that, that there would be some hope. He starts that promise all the way back in the garden, but that promise becomes clearer and clearer and it becomes evident that that promise was meant for the Jews, And so when Paul says you were alienated from Christ, you were separated from Christ, that's a big deal. They didn't have that promise, the Gentiles. Now, he doesn't just simply say that. He, he gives a second thing. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You were outside of God's people. God dwelt with his people. Now, I don't think most Gentiles understood that this was a problem. But after they became Christians, they looked back and they understood that this was a problem. The Apostle Paul goes on, he says, I want you to remember that you were strangers to the covenants of promise. God had given all kinds of promise to the nation of Israel. One was to Abraham, that that through him all the nations would be blessed, uh, that he would become a great nation, that his, 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 his people would be like the stars in the heavens. The sand on the seashore. That was a promise that was given to the nation of Israel. God gave David a promise It was to the people of Israel that one of David's offspring would sit upon the throne and his kingdom would be established forever. And fourthly, the Apostle Paul says, I want you to remember that you were one who had no hope. This week as I was reading my Bible, my quiet time actually yesterday isaiah 62 i was struck by this promise to the people of israel isaiah 62 3 you shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your god and at the end of verse 5 he says and as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride so shall your god rejoice over you isn't that beautiful But that was given to the people of Israel. And So if you grew up outside the the nation of Israel, you would read that and go, that's great, but that's for them, that's not for me. Paul says, I want you to remember that at one time you didn't have these things, and finally he says that you were without God. Without God. No hope. Strangers to the promises. Alienated from the very people of God. Separated from Christ. Paul, he wants us to remember these things because he wants us to to taste the beauty of what is true for us today. And so he first says, remember And then he goes on and he says, hold it. Now I want you to understand what Christ has done. And again, he gives us a big list. That's what Paul does. He wants us to think in this context. He wants us to consider. He wants us to wrestle with these things. And so in in Ephesians, he he begins his glorious uh, section at verse 13. And he says, but now in Christ. He says, that's what you once were, but now in Christ Jesus. Now, all these promises, all these realities, the Apostle Paul wants us to understand is not for everybody. It is for everybody, but it's not. It's only for those who are in Christ Jesus. Who are those people? Chapter 1, verse 13. Those who heard the gospel and believed, put their trust in, put their faith in what Christ had done. And so Paul says, But now, verse 13, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Look at some of the things that Jesus has done for those who are in relationship with Him or in union with Him. First off, He has brought us near. Isaiah. Maybe because I've been reading through Isaiah, but Isaiah 57. I think Paul was thinking of this section. He says, uh, Peace, peace to the... To the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. This is a a promise for the future. Peace, peace, to the far and near, and I will heal them. He's talking to Israel in chapter 57. He says, I'm going to bring them back. They're far away. and I'm going to bring them back, and I'm going to heal them. But in the previous chapter, chapter 56, he's talking to the foreigners and the foreigners who joined themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants. He says, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. And so Paul, I think thinking back to Isaiah, it says, guess what? God is going to bring those who are far away, bring them near. That's the, the people of Israel who've been scattered and he's going to bring them back and going to bring them near, but he's also going to do something else. He's going to take the foreigners and bring them to his house of prayer where they might be filled with joy. Now Paul says, that's happened through the blood of Christ. It's through his death. It's through faith in what he's done for us. That he took our place. That he paid for our iniquities upon the cross. Now, Paul doesn't stop there. Not only did he take those who were far and bring them near, he says he made both of them one, the Jews and the Gentiles. Remember, they they were hurling insults at each other. And now he says, I'm bringing them together. I'm going to make them one. That's what he says in chapter 2, looking at uh, verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one, and listen, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Zach, do we got a picture of that uh, temple up there? I think it's a little later. This would be the temple during the days of Jesus, during the days of the Apostle Paul. And you notice right here was a courtyard. This was for the Jewish woman. Now males would go in there, but the females could not go beyond. Then, right in here is where all the sacrifices, etc., took place. The priests would be in there, but the Jewish men could go in there. The the ladies could look through here and look through here and watch what was going on, but they could not enter into that courtyard. Do you see this fence all the way around? If I understand this map correctly, this was the wall of hostility the Gentiles could not pass that fence we're talking this is, a, this is an area of about 40 acres and they could not pass that fence Josephus tells us that all the way around there were signs warning Gentiles if they got any closer they would be put to death that fence was some four and a half feet tall we're told so they could probably see over it, but they couldn't go past it. The Apostle Paul, when he's talking about how this, this broken wall, this wall of hostility is broken, and he's brought them and made them one, meaning they can now be together. Let's carry on. Paul not only says that they broken down the wall of hostility, but he says he tells us how by abolishing the law. Now this seems a strange word because Jesus says, I've not come to abolish the law, but I've come to fulfill it. So what's going on? Probably very quickly, as we read through the New Testament, we begin to realize that the ceremonial law of the, the, the Jews was no longer valid. The circumcision laws, the food laws, those things were abolished. They were fulfilled in Christ. But also the moral law, things thou shalt not lie, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal. The very things they could not keep and do, both Gentile and Jew, we all fail. Jesus fulfilled it. He lived the perfect life that we could not live. And then he paid the penalty that we should have paid. And so when Paul talks about abolishing the law, I think he's saying, no longer are those ceremonial things that were meant for the Jews... they're they're no longer necessary and so it brings the two of us to one but he's also saying the, the laws that both Jews and Gentiles couldn't keep like thou shalt not steal or thou shalt not lie Christ has paid for that and he kept those laws and now he's bringing the two as one he's broken down that wall Now, Paul says something actually even more crazy. He says this. And listen, please hang on. He goes on. Verse 14, not only are they both one. Verse 15, not only is he abolished the law of the commandments, but that he says that he may create in himself one new man in place of the two. what Paul is actually saying is is not that he brought Jew and Gentile together and they mixed. He's saying I'm actually creating a new society or a new humanity or what I like to say a new ethnic group. And so in the context of the church, those who consider themselves in Christ, they, they place their faith in this Jesus and what he's done. We no longer have Ghana and Dutch. It's one new humanity. We no longer have Nigerian and German. It's one new humanity. We no longer have Filipino and, and, uh, I'm thinking of our brother Andrew, the one with the beard, English. There's one new humanity. One new ethnic group. One new identity. That's who we are for those who are in Christ. What Paul says is stunning. It's the only place in the world that that happens. No president of the United States will ever cause peace between the Jews and the Palestinians. If they do, it's going to be very short term. No policy in the political realm is going to bring about peace between ethnic groups. Somebody might, with an armed fist, cause us, like the Romans, cause us to be nice to each other to a certain extent but there will always be those animosities. But within the context of the church, because Christ has made us new, we're a new humanity, a new society. This is significant. Paul is just, he's not just throwing words on a page, but he's wanting them to remember who you once were. And now this is what God has done with us. That's significant. Paul goes on to say he's reconciled us both to God. Remember, we were by nature children of wrath, and how did he reconcile us? By the cross. It's crazy, but Christ had to willingly go to die so that we wouldn't have to die. He willingly went to the cross so that we could become friends with God. So that the animosity, the the wedge that was between Adam and Eve and God could be removed. Paul doesn't stop there. He's got so many things to say, and it's almost like he's running out of room on his page, and he goes on and he says verse 18, For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. We can come into his presence. Let me paint a picture for you. Revelation chapter 7. In, In my mind, my prayer in planting a church in the heart of the city of Calgary is that we'd have a, a miniature picture of this. And after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and they were crying out with a loud voice, not voices, but a loud voice, singular, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Oh, may God allow the church of Jesus Christ from every ethnic group to begin to look like what we will look like in the future. Look around. I know we're not all here but more of you showed up than I thought. But, I I mean, put your head on a swivel. It's okay. Look around this room. If you're a follower of Christ, if you believe that he died for your sins and rose from the dead, then you are in Christ, not because of anything you've done, but because of what he's done. And if that's true of you, then we're a body. We're a family. We're one. And I know last week I brought a map of of Holland, and so many of you showed where you grew up and where you were born because I wanted to show where where my parents were born and raised, and and that's pretty cool, but we got something cooler. Part of a a new person, a new man, we're one. That's crazy. but That's what Paul says. I'm not saying that. He's talking about Jew and Gentile. But the implications are are, are within the Gentiles. That's true as well. Now, finally, I think Paul then goes on and asks us to begin to, to consider and to look at this new portrait. Look at what he does verse 19 he first off calls us a kingdom he has actually three different pictures that describes us in ephesians chapter in this section at least he says we're built uh uh, verse 19 so then you are no longer strangers and aliens nobody wants to be a stranger and an alien but you are fellow citizens with the saints He, he says you're part of this kingdom. You're part of this new nation. You're th- that's the picture he's trying to describe. Not Canadians, but you're Christians. And you've been united to... He doesn't say you've been united to the Jewish family. He says you've been united to the saints. Meaning a whole new group of Christians. A whole new A whole new kingdom. He, he then takes another picture, another metaphor, and he says in verse 19 of uh, chapter 2, and members of the household of God. That picture is a, the idea of a family. He says, you, you now belong to a family. I, you know, I have more in common with my brothers and sisters in Christ than I do with my siblings who are not in Christ. Now, I pray for my siblings who are not in Christ. But I have more in common with the church than I do with them. This is my first family. Now, I know it goes beyond the borders of this group. But that's what the text says. We're part of a new household, the household of God. And then finally... He gives us yet another picture. And he, he tries to describe us by calling us a temple. And so you see Paul mixing his metaphors. He's, he's got different ideas. He's got different pictures. But he wants us to grasp what's happened with us. It's kind of cool. And with this temple, he says, we were built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. So Peter and James and, and John and, and the apostle Paul they were, they were individuals who who spoke for God and they laid the foundation. They, 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 they passed on the message of Christ, the Gospel. And the church is built upon what they passed on to us. But he goes on. Not only upon them, but Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone. Now, I'm not... I should understand these things. My whole family, they're all carpenters, but I was a black sheep. So I don't get this stuff, so I've got to read it in books, and then maybe you can help me understand it. But listen to this. Paul is here referring to the cornerstone, the most significant part of the foundation of the temple. This large stone bore much of the weight of the building and tied the walls firmly together. In the early 1990s, archaeologists discovered five enormous stones that helped form the foundation of the Jerusalem temple. So that picture we saw back there? The largest stone measured 55 feet long, 11 feet high, and 14 feet wide, estimated to weigh 570 tons. Try to picture that. He goes on, There is no inconsistency in Paul's thought regarding the foundation as consisting of the apostles and prophets on the one hand and Christ on the other. The ultimate foundation is Christ. But the apostles and prophets lay that foundation through their proclamation of Christ and through building up in their knowledge of Christ and His Word. So Christ is that cornerstone. Then the apostles and prophets, they tie into who Christ is and what Christ has done, and they lay the groundwork, the foundation, for this temple and then he begins to tell us and that we are being joined together so read Ephesians chapter 2 verse 21 in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord so the temple is still growing he's still adding he's still fitting pieces in when when he when he says being joined together that same word is found in 1 Corinthians 11 and 2 where it talks about how we are betrothed to one another in marriage. Where we made one. And so it's as if the Spirit of God is taking the toms and the autos and fitting us into the temple. And saying, You belong, you're 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 one flesh, you're a body, you're connected. And, and, and it's a, it speaks of his endearment, but it speaks of his, his ongoing work. And what's fascinating is that temple consists of those who went before us. And so I think of a Martin Luther, or I think of um, a John Calvin, and so many others. Charles Spurgeon. God himself fitted them into the temple. Isn't this a beautiful picture? He's trying to help help, help us understand. And finally he says in verse 21, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. He says in that temple, he's building that temple, and it's a place where the Spirit of God will dwell. Where God himself will be with us. The temple, the picture we saw before. It was it was a, a a picture where God would dwell in when when they would when they um, would dedicate the temple. They would see amazing things as God would show His presence, dwell the place in within the place. I find it fascinating that so many years ago when we were in Africa, I had the privilege to preach in various different churches. And the Spirit of God dwelt there. I was united with those people. We were one. I find it amazing now, uh, over the summer, where two bodies have come together. And we worship together. But we're not just worshiping together. This is a picture that we are one. In Christ. Uh, going even bigger than that, Jews and Gentiles who were hurling insults at each other, those who believed in Christ, Paul is saying, You're one. Now, later in this book, Paul's going to say, You're going to have to work on this oneness. That's my paraphrase. We're to be at peace with each other. We strive for unity. And so there's this moving that we're, we're, we're working at this and we're striving for this. And, and that happens in the context of husband and wife. It ha- con- happens in the context of parent and child. It happens in the context of employer and employee. I'm amazed at what God has done. Not only just for me personally, I once was lost but now I'm found I'm amazed at what God has done for his body his bride he delights in us he rejoices over us consider these things remember who we once were consider what Christ has done for us and accomplished and look at these pictures of a family of a household of a com- kingdom of a temple this is who we are let's pray Lord, um, unless you open our eyes, we can't see these things. And so I ask that you help us to see these things. And Father, I pray that you help us understand how that works out to, in the context of my home. Help me to love Lynn even more. Understanding that we're one in Christ. Father, in the context of a Sunday morning or as, as I meet different individuals from the church throughout the week, Lord, help us understand that we're one. We're not because of anything we've done, but because of what you've done. Father, all the implications of that, Lord, I'm not smart enough to understand those things. But Lord, as I grow in you and as we grow in you, help us to grow in our understanding of what you've done. And then what does that mean? Dear Jesus, I thank you for coming to this earth, for submitting yourself to the death on a cross. I thank you that the, you had the power to be raised from the dead. Three days later, you no longer were dead, but you lived forever, and you eventually sent it into heaven. Thank you. And now, Lord, all the implications of that, would you help us to understand and strive after? Of course, by your power and your spirit. In your precious name we pray. Amen.